This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Because if you can tell me what your habits are, I can tell you what sort of a person you are. I can tell you what your future looks like. But like I always say, life is 10% what happens to you. It's 90% what you do about it. The people who are most effective in the workplace believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past. When people don't believe that their future is going to be bigger than their past, they begin to disengage. You're listening to The Circuit of Success, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve success in every facet of life. Only on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Now, your host, Brett Gilliland. Welcome back to the Circuit of Success podcast. I am your host, Brett Gilliland, and I am excited about the guest we had today. We have an individual by the name of Adam Casey. Adam is a former college football player at Mizzou. He is a uh, former uh, military uh, person for this great country, and he is a philanthropist and a student. So excited to have Adam on the show today. We're going to talk about how he's uh, ready to help people really show the world how much one can accomplish when they no longer fear failure. So I don't know about you, but I know we've talked about in our other shows, um, just a lot of people, uh, a lot of successful people uh, fear failure. And when you hear some of the stories of what uh, Adam has gone through, you'll understand why this guy doesn't fear failure any longer. We're going to talk about what makes you tough enough to think you can do certain things. That was one of the questions he had to answer in applying for a derby that went across Eastern Europe and Asia. We're going to talk about why cancer and the military were not the ways he felt the closest to dying in his life, and also how he took his cancer hit right on the chin and took it personally and just knew that he would persevere and beat this deadly disease. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Adam Casey. All right, Adam Casey, welcome to Circuit of Success Podcast. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing good, Brett. I, uh, I can't say enough how much I appreciate uh, being on here with you. Absolutely. Uh, I know your friend, Stephen Fraley, a uh, guy I know here in St. Louis, introduced the two of us. So I'm thankful for him to, uh, to let our listeners get to hear your story and everything that's uh, made Adam Casey, Adam Casey. So you got a lot of stuff, man. You, uh, I know you played college football at Mizzou. Our, our Illini fans may hold me against that, but that, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll let that fly. But we got Mizzou football. We've got a military guy served our country, um, a cancer survivor, a philanthropist, lots of great stuff in your life, man. So happy to have you here today. Why don't you just kind of take our listeners on a ride through your life and what's kind of helped define you and who you are and who you've become? Sure. Um, so you probably touched on a lot of the things that I would say I, my, my story falls under the umbrella of, but more detailed is I'm you know 30 years old. I'm sitting in a library in Boulder, Colorado, uh, in between classes, studying some computer science because I keep hearing this thing called Google, and I'm pretty sure it's going to get pretty popular sometime soon. And over the years, I've just kind of built up this array of stories um, with my life with you know, a willingness to kind of just test different boundaries. And I think that's the, the, the main focus of everything that I've kind of accumulated is basically a willingness to fail. So, um, yeah, you know, walk on at Mizzou definitely wasn't making the team because of my speed. 
you know, after college, after Mizzou, uh, spent a few years doing that soul searching with a biology degree, joined the military, uh, tried to go out to Navy SEAL training, kind of hit a, hit a rough patch in hell week and then uh, transferred to the Marine Corps, became an infantry officer. Unfortunately, uh, as an uh, infantry officer, as I was kind of doing a workup to get deployed over to the Middle East, got diagnosed with an advanced stage four cancer and, uh, you know, went through a little went through a little you know, fight with that and then approaching about a year and a half in remission right now, um, back in school, like I said previously, and just kind of focused on taking each day as it comes. Oh man, it's uh, great to hear your story and appreciate you sharing that. My, my wife and I have a foundation called Swing for Hope and uh, we raise money. Uh, it's one of our passions is for cancer. And so, you know, I, one of the things when I read your story uh, on an article I saw online that, that really caught my eye. So kind of walk us through that. How'd that change your life? I mean, I, I read something on your website that says, show the world how much one can accomplish when they no longer fear failure. And uh, that was just very profound. That stuck with me. I took a note of that. I thought it was a great saying and, and actually something I'll probably incorporate into my life. So when you, when you think about that, what did that cancer do for you in your life? Well, to get to the root of, of that, that honest, that very honest uh, personal belief of mine, um, you know, a willingness to fail, that stems from uh, about 10 years ago as, you know, I was, as I was playing at Mizzou, we were playing in the Sun Bowl in the, not the most romantic of cities, El, El Paso, Texas, but probably, <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, the foundations of my hopeless romanticism uh, kind of personality, personality overall. We were, you know, we were playing Oregon State. Um, the way bowl interactions go between teams and the city is you spend a lot of time doing a lot of community organized events. And because of that, I got to spend a lot of time with a girl that was a representative of the Sun Bowl committee overall. It's really weird to explain, but she, believe it or not, she was designated a Sun Court princess. And um, uh, basically, you know, at 20 years old, I just fell head over heels for this girl um, for no specific reason other than I just couldn't get her out of my head. Even after the game was over, I went back down to visit her. And that's kind of where this, you know, root of willingness to fail, because I remember sitting on the airplane as I was going down to uh, visit her, thinking to myself, this could potentially just blow up in my face. Um, this is, this is the pre, you know, Snapchat, Instagram, you know, Facebook was around, but you know, it was, it was very blind going into somebody that I'd only known a few days. And so I, I remember just (laughs) really catching myself as I was, as I was 30,000 feet, you know, above Arizona or something thinking like, wow, I'm pretty committed to this, to the next five days with this girl. So let's see what goes. And, um, obviously, you know, as the story unfolds, just spent almost every waking minute together and, you know, not, not the intimate kind of relationship that I think most people are imagining, you know, obviously there was some intimacy there, but it was a very deep rooted connection between us. And because of that, just, you know, this tremendous catalyst to, you know, constantly take take risks in every facet of my life, um, for better or worse, just catapulted me to the to the spot that I'm at right now. So yeah, so the cancer, the cancer thing, um, you know, it's it's you know, it's a really weird one. Uh, I don't think I fall into a lot of the storyline that you know Hallmark and a lot of those hashtag expletive cancer kind of uh, drives fall into. I mean. 
when I got diagnosed with cancer, that, you know, that wasn't my first metaphorical kick in the gut, um, you know, from, from God or from fate, whichever one you want to attribute it to. And so it kind of just was something like just take it on the chin and, you know, in, in, in cancer treatment, I definitely did a lot of soul searching and I really ingrained that, that mantra of, you know, as soon as I, cause I knew I was going to get healthy. Um, even though the doctors were a little iffy about it, I knew I was going to pull out of it. And so I definitely said like, if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be the example that I wish to be, then I'm going to have to take some pretty darn big, big risks. And that kind of has led me to, you know, being back in school and some of my summer adventures, I think we'll get into in a little bit. Absolutely. So how, how, how did you think you're just going to get healthy? I mean, you know, you know, people obviously with our work with cancer, we see a lot of people and, and, and some people, man, they take it head on, right? And they just fight it and you just know they're going to. And then there's some that you can just almost feel. So, you know, anybody out there that's gotten bad news, but, you know, somebody that's gotten the bad news and got hit on the chin, as you said, what would you tell our listeners is how do you face that? How do you face getting hit on the chin and just know I'm going to be all right? <laughs> so... A lot of a lot of my uh, a lot of my personality is, is very derivative of other people's. So I'm going to tell you one of my favorite stories of one of my Marine infantry officer captains, you know, instructors as I was going through training. Um, I won't say his name because I'm pretty sure he'd get really pissed at me if I said his name <laughs> on the podcast. But I'll just we'll just call him Captain. Um, and uh, so this Captain, um, you know, very you know, combat veteran. And, you know, combat veteran at a time, you know, when the surge was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan. So not a combat veteran in, in, you know, in nominal terms, very much so in the action. And I remember him telling us a story about the first time he was shot at and the first time, you know, that the the explosions are going off. And obviously your adrenaline's going and you're kind of just in the moment. But then he said, after, after enough times of being shot at, after enough times of seeing just random things explode, you just start, you just said, you just start to get pissed. You start to get annoyed. You don't, you, the adrenaline is still there, but it's less of a, of a spike. And you're just more annoyed with the fact that somebody would dare shoot at you. Um, it's kind of, you know, it, it definitely has an ego to it for sure. But so when I got diagnosed with cancer, I honestly kind of had this internal, you know, self this, this internal speak where I was saying, how dare you get me sick? Like, how dare you think you can come into my body, invade my body? How dare you think you could step out of line? Um, you know, biologically speaking, a, a cancerous cell stepping out of line and mutating and metastasizing. Like, you know, I, I just, I took personal insult to it because I do have the foundations of a lot of, like I said, walk on at Mizzou um, when I got accepted for Navy SEAL training, I remember, I remember two days after the uh, the notorious um, SEAL Team Six helicopter was shot down after the Bin Laden raid. Two days after that happened, I was in California in a final round of interviews with a SEAL board, all doing all this stuff. So you def- I definitely had my own ego to like. Do you not know who I am? How dare you right. try and limit me to to a hospital? Wow, that's phenomenal. Yeah, because I think the rest of the world, we, 
we obviously don't know what that's like having a bullet shot at us. So uh, I would I would say I'd be pissed. That's a good analogy to use. Getting pissed off at the cancer. So yeah. So I know that obviously changed your life and changed your outlook. And I don't know the the time frame of this, but share our listeners. I, I was just blown away by this Mongol Derby or this Mongol Rally, if I'm even saying it correctly. But this thing through Eastern Europe and, and Asia and and tell me about that. Right. So I definitely, so when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed two years ago, uh, actually, you know, it's, I, you know, one of those days you can't remember, you can't seem to forget, um, November 17th of 2014 and went through six months of remission in room, six months of, you know, pretty butt kicking chemotherapy. And then I entered remission on May 18th of 2015 one day before my birthday, I'm, you know, my birthday is May 19th. And I was, so I kind of, I kind of look at that day as my actual new birthday. And so, but from the moment that I entered remission, I would say there was, there was a sandbag on the gas pedal. Um, I, the concept of living on borrowed time was at the forefront of pretty much every decision I was making. Um, I refused to, to let any single moment slip away in my life. Uh, I can, re- I can remember being just so torn up, um, having to spend my day staring at a clock that I, I, you know, I made this promise to myself that as soon as I get out, like I'm never going to wear a watch again, cause I don't ever want to see the time passing me by. Uh, so I do wear a watch now that, that has changed. Unfortunately, I do have to keep, uh, I do have to be professional and keep, keep a watch and keep accountable in that sense. But I really just started looking for every adventure possible in life. I looked for a way to kind of reclaim who I was, that that person who was insulted by getting cancer in the first place, by building up a life's resume of just outlandish kind of, you know, adventures. And so the rally was the best way to describe how it came about the rally is that my friends can be absolute jerks sometimes and they know that <laughs> I'm they know I'm the type of person you can't you can't say, you you can't dare me not to um you know you can't you can't tempt me with something as big as the Mongol rally so the so details of the rally uh, it's a quote unquote race um, that starts in London and it finishes in some obscure town along the Russian Mongolian border. And there's really only three rules. Uh, and those are pretty loose terms overall to the race. The first one is that you have to choose a car that's 1000 liter engine size or less. So you're talking like two, three cylinder cars. Um, the second rule is they only give you point A and point B, you know, London to kind of Russia, how you get there is 100% up to you. Um, they don't, they don't do anything with visas. They don't do anything with, you know, uh, secure trade or, you know, driving routes or anything like that. And then the third rule is that you can't, <laughs> you can't really have any outside help. So you can't have like this POS car and then have a, you know, a, a pacer car that's a Range Rover with snow tires and extra gas cans. Cause the whole point of it is to simply put you so far outside your comfort zone that you're forced to improvise. Cause they almost guarantee that, you know, the car is going to break down. One of the unwritten rules is that the car can only be fixed with a duct tape and hammer. Wow. <laughs> and, yeah. And uh, it, it's definitely, 
you know, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, motivational poster captions to the reasoning behind the race. But the whole point is basically to emerge as the most interesting person in the world uh, when it's finished. And there was about 300 racers overall, 300 teams overall um, this past year that I did it. And, the, you know, teams could vary from two to four to six, you know, it, <laughs> There's a there's an old adage in the military with some vehicles. It's like how how many people can you fit in the back of this MRAP? It's like you know eight, the technically it's 18 or something, and then it's okay, and then another, and then another, and then another. And so I see I saw some people pack some pretty condensed uh, cars at the start line, and so that that piqued my interest obviously. And like I said, you know you can't tempt me with a good time. Now leading into the Mongol Derby. Um, the Derby is a, is a horse race that covers about a thousand kilometers throughout Mongolia and it has a designated course and that's, but that's not released ahead of time. And it's kind of, it it kind of, you know, it, it, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? It agrees with the, what I believe is the, you know, cowboy rustic mentality that every guy or person I think has at their inner core. And so there's a lot that goes into the Derby as well. But so the rally and the Derby are put on by the same organization. And I literally stumbled upon the Derby one night when I was trying to show my friend the rally website. And I just accidentally, you know, clicked on the wrong populated keyword search. And I just came across the Derby. And for the Derby, it has essay questions that you have to answer in order to be, you know, for the application. Whereas the rally, I paid an entry fee and you're in the Derby. You kind of have to actually show your worth, your worth. And one of the essay questions, and I kid you not verbatim is what makes you think you're tough enough to do the Derby? And I like threw my hands up, you know, suggestively in the air and said to my friend, like, should I just tell him about my weekend? Or should I? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, man, that is, uh, that is, I'm so obviously this isn't even safe to do. I mean, were, were there, were you in any uncomfortable situations threatened at all? I mean, what, what happened there? Yeah. I know you got snagged on the borders of uh, between Russia and Estonia. So maybe tell yeah. us about that and any other uh, funny or crazy or scary events that happened. Right. Well, so I'll start off with saying, you know, uh, finishing up the Derby portion, I had no riding experience whatsoever. Um, we're talking the last time I've been on a horse was, you know, that fifth grade birthday party kind of thing. And so I, and I was very forthright and honest. I try, I try to live an extremely authentic life uh, in every, in every realm. Kind of, again, the new cancer me is a willingness to, you know, sometimes you just got to put it all out there. And if somebody doesn't like what they're hearing, you know, that's just the plain truth. And so I was very honest about my writing experience. And when they accepted me, uh, they told me pretty much that it was definitely on account of my essay, <laughs> you know, my 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 detailed my detail oriented essay that kind of accumulated all of the trials over the past six months. And so, I would say the rally uh, there was less of a risk of physical harm, more administrative and judicial, wherein you know you're kind of driving through a country. So for me. I did the rally. I decided to do it with my dad. I, I saw it as a gift to my dad who, you know, hasn't had the opportunities to test himself in the way that I test myself. And I just want, I, you know, I, I, I saw it as a tangible gift, um, this ability to tell a story about how he drove from London to Russia with his, you know, 30 year old son in this 
piece of crap car. And so, <laughs> and, uh, well, oh, but, and we also had a cameraman attached. So like we, you know, we had this like six foot four cameraman wedged into this little four seater car that looks like one of those zip cars driving around in, you know, Manhattan or something. So, uh, you know, we, we were driving around with, with pretty much this copy of the registration of our paperwork. We didn't have the original paper paperwork, um, different rules, different countries kind of thing. And so we, the risk there was mainly just to be, you know, get a hefty fine and obviously get a breakdown and, you know, in some obscure town where you don't speak the language and, and that kind of thing. But it was also kind of like, you don't know what somebody is the closer you get to the Russian border, the less people seem to smile and the less people seem to be uh, willing to understand your situation to drive a outlandish car across Europe. And so we were mainly worried that we were legitimately going to end up in a Russian gulag prison, um, you know, trying to bribe the wrong, trying to bribe the wrong police officer at the wrong time kind of thing. And so, uh, but yeah, like you said, we got, we got turned back at the Russian border because we didn't have basic, we were basically driving around with the equivalent of our passport, a copy of a passport instead of the, you know, your passport that you need to go through customs. And so, uh, you know, improvise, adapt, overcome kind of, kind of mindset just ended up driving around Europe with my dad, having a pretty awesome time and legitimately left the car with our Airbnb host in Prague. Like as we were, as we were, you know, signing the guest book, we also just handed over the keys to the car. So we got pretty awesome Airbnb reviews. Yeah, for that. <laughs> and then, you know, I caught a flight to Mongolia. My dad caught a flight to the States. And then in Mon- the Mongol Derby, yeah, there's some stories of uh, some risks in there. Obviously, the way I ended up with some broken ribs. Um, I think in the first few years of the race, somebody actually died uh, because of dehydration and exposure. Um, it, it, it tries its best to, like I said, fulfill that cowboy kind of imagination, you know, thinking of Clint Eastwood, John Wayne, riding off into the sunset that a lot of people have, you know, lose touch with these days. And I know in my year, so let's say, so I, so there's about 30 some odd, let's, let's conservatively say 40 riders. Um, I think only half of us finished, uh, mainly, mainly due to injuries. Um, one guy who was British, who was British special forces, uh, he had to be medevaced to like Shanghai, China, um, because he kept getting thrown off the horse so badly that, uh, you know, he was, he ended up with some, you know, I think a few broken bones, but he just kept hitting his head. And by the end of the race, by the end of his race, the way it was going down was they were like other riders were basically boxing him in so that he couldn't fall off his horse. And and these are and wild it, horses, right? They're not like trained horses yeah. you'd have here in the States. Oh, no, no, no. These these are definitely, you know, as close to feral as I think you can get um, when you want to put a saddle on something. And so the uh, there is. Yeah. So, like I said, I, I got thrown off. I broke a few ribs. I know some other people, they broke like a hip. Um, definitely, you know, a few concussions to go around. And then just the overall grittiness is something that you can't really train or account for when you're sitting comfortably at a kitchen table, filling out the essay application, you know, you know, you, you, it's, it's hard to put yourself in extreme discomfort when you have the amenities that we're so used to. 
Yeah, so it's midnight. It's pitch black. I mean, are you traveling with people? Is it kind of a every man for themselves, keep going? Or are you traveling groups? But I mean, what are you doing at midnight? Yeah. Or are you sleeping in tents? Are you carrying the tents with you? How does that work? That's on you. That's all on you. So the uh, the derby, you're allowed to carry a certain weight. I think it came out to be 11 pounds with you overall for the entirety of the race, which is 10 days. Um, however, whatever you feel like you need 10 pounds of, it could be candy bars, it could be painkillers, um, that's what you get. And so that, you know, 10 or that 11 pounds, that adds up pretty quick. And so we would all wear, we would all have our own personal GPS devices, but then we would actually have a GPS tracker device that would follow us along. So that, like I said, in the first few years, somebody died because uh, of exposure, because I think they were out, you know, th- and this is, this is Mongolian, you know, wilderness. This is not, you know, that there's a town a few miles away. There's like, I hope that there's a hut somewhere in a 20 mile radius um, because if not, I'm sleeping out under the stars and I'm pretty sure this horse is going to step on me in the middle of my, in the middle of the night. And so, wow. you know, yeah, midnight comes, um, midnight. So they had, they had a ride cutoff time, I think at like eight thirty nine o'clock uh, for safety reasons, but where you were, whether you were at a, like a vet check or a horse change station, or whether you decided to push out and, you know, camp out under the stars or, you know, kind of the Mongolian hospitality is that you would basically be able to just go up to these random huts or tents and have, I remember I had this little index card that had basic translations and they were, they, they were more about taking care of my horse and taking care of me. And, you know, you just ride up to this random family and hand them this card and say, you know, and hope that they agreed to kind of just, you know, house and, 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 you know, comfort you in some ways with food and water um, but like I said, it was more about taking care of the horse. And I remember one night I was riding out on my own and it had, and this is, this is like my favorite memory of the Derby. So like I said, these horses, these things, these, these weren't horse. These were, these were monsters with four legs and, and a mentality that is unparalleled. Um, I, th- I think when it comes to sports and that these things would just go at an all out sprint, like a gallop for miles. And, you know, I've, I've had close calls in my life. Obviously I've had, you know, cancer. I've had some, I've had some things happen to me that have made me kind of second guess if there was going to be a tomorrow. I have never felt closer to death than when I felt than when I was on one of these horses. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was one, one instance when I got thrown off right before I got thrown off, I legitimately could envision the very sharp edged rock that my face was about to make an impression on and think to myself like, well, Hey, this is not how I thought I would go, but it's better than choking on a pretzel. And, um, so <laughs> the, uh, this went out a hero, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm going out strong and, you know, put it on my tombstone rode like the wind. And, uh, but then, uh, the story that I'm spe- that I'm trying, trying to, to wrap up is basically I was riding out on my own. I had finally, finally gotten a horse that decided it was going to allow me to be on its back. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much you know about horses, but that true connection, um, really just got established throughout the, you know, 20 miles I was riding this thing. And it was this really beautiful scenery as I'm going over the Mongolian, I guess they call it the step, you know, I would just call it a prairie, um, the rain clouds coming in, you know, just, just everything was right about it to fulfill that cowboy mentality. And I just remember, pulling up to this, this hut, super grizzled out, you know, I haven't shaved or washed myself in a few days. 
in the rain with my head down with a horse that I loved and just gave them uh, that card and they allow me to come in. And as I'm, you know, you know, taking off the saddle and everything and I'm about to go into their hut, I, uh, I, I see this kid in the doorway and this kid's probably eight or nine years old and he's completely stark naked. And I, you know, just, I've seen weird things in my life and, you know, just, you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm in Mongolia kind of thing. But as I'm getting closer, I could see that this kid is, he had what we would call lobster eyes. <clears throat> Excuse me. He had, you know, he had his eyes going in totally different directions and I don't speak Mongolian, but I know what this kid was saying was not Mongolian. And as I'm stepping kind of across the threshold into their home, the, the kid just starts dragging himself across the floor, like his bare naked body. He's crawling across the floor. So obviously the kid is uh, mentally and physically handicapped. And I, I don't know why, but the first thing that came into mind was like polio and tuberculosis. And I had heard about how mainland, you know, Mongolian families will, will just send their sick children out to the country, um, not even to with relatives, but just out to the country. And so uh, I quickly backtracked outside the hut and tried to explain to my host the best that I just simply wanted to sleep with my horse that night and <laughs> decided to sleep out in the open stars. So that was maybe not the most common of stories, but relatively speaking, yeah, you, uh, you know, wherever, wherever you were at midnight, you know, that that's, usually was in, was in some stranger's hut or out underneath the stars. So how do, how do you take that into today's world where obviously what you're doing there is a lot harder than anything I ever do in our business, you know, visionary wealth advisors, we own a firm and, and, and nothing I have to do amounts to that, right? How difficult that would be and how scary that would be. So how does that go into your normal now everyday life? You're obviously going to college. I know this Google thing is out there for you. But, but, I mean, nothing would seem scary now, right? And I know that's probably not true, but how, how does that, everything you've overcome, come out to your everyday life? Right. It's, uh, I would say overall, it, it's given me humility. And that's, that's, that's a personality trait that you could argue is, is either lost or misguided in either the millennial generation or, you know, any generation overall. Cause obviously, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people out there that would rather speak in positive criticism terms instead of negative criticism. Uh, I don't have a, I don't beat myself up over my failures because clearly I have a laundry list of, of them. Um, and I would say that all these things in my life have just given me the confidence that I have the utmost ability to simply start again. And once you kind of get over that ego check of being that person who asks, you know, the, the stupid question, being the, per being the person who asks the most basic question about something complex, which, it, you know, and most likely everyone is thinking that question but you just have the willingness to asset the bravery to kind of just put yourself out there and, you know, understand that, you know, another person's opinion does not define you. And so that overall is what I've taken and what I, I put into almost every step um, that I take these days, uh, you know, on top of being on school, I'm trying to really break into the running, you know, the ultra and uh, kind of marathon running circuit. I'm trying to qualify for Boston, um, and because of that, I've got, you know, I'm picking up a few running partners here in Boulder that are a lot faster than I am. And I do not rely on my athletic background 
uh, to, to kind of get me through anything. I, I tell them straight up, like I have, I, I, I plain, I run stupid. Um, teach me like, how do I tie my shoes? And I literally have asked, how do I tie my shoes as a 30 year old man? Wow. <laughs> this is uh, this is unbelievable stuff, man. I, I really appreciate you sharing these stories. And so, you know, now one of the things we talk about in our firm is create your inheritance, right? So, so many people wait on the inheritance and, and, and so on and so forth. We won't dive into all that. But what are you doing to create your inheritance now? And, and what I mean by that is not just money, but success. Yeah. My biggest thing is success. You define it, right? So, my definition of success is whatever the person I'm choosing to spend time with, whatever their success is, that's my definition of success. So what's your definition of success for you and your life and how you're creating your inheritance? Right. Well, so I would say my, I would say my inheritance and how I'm creating my inheritance is actually like, you know, I was saying before, a lot of, a lot of my stuff is derivative of others. Um, I think there was a moment when uh, Mahatma Gandhi was getting on a train and some, monk journalist whoever was sh- shouted out to him uh you know gandhi what is what is your message to the people and he simply replied my life is my message you know his his devotion um to what he saw as his purpose in life and so yeah the inheritance the inheritance question is obviously can be fulfilled as a tangible bank account number um it can be you know a trust obviously that's what most people think think of when they think of an inheritance. But for me, I encompass that I am simply a vessel of a message, um, you know, you know, non-deterministic, you know, kind of whether or not it's fate or luck or just, you know, the bad side of the coin. Some of these things have happened to me. I refuse to let what has happened to me in my life go to waste. And part of that is being able to do, you know, interviews like this and, and others and being able to spread my message. So my, my inheritance that I pass on to others is this willingness to fail and this ability to constantly improve myself. Um, and, and, and that is based in, in like I was saying before, in a, in a foundation of humility. And so the way I would define success is not, not somebody who is maybe a, created a material wealth for themselves, even though people that do that, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from people that have made their life's mission different than mine because we're all on our different paths. But my definition of success, quite honestly, is someone who is authentically happy. And, you know, parents tell their children, I don't care what you do in life. You could go be, you know, and I don't, and I'm not going to say a specific job because I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate you know, anybody's career path in their life. But, you know, they say you can, you could be X, Y, you know, Z of the lower, you know, blue collar ladder. I don't care what you do, as long as you do it to the utmost of your ability. And as long as you're happy, I've taken that, that to heart, like I'm, I'm done keeping up with the Joneses. I'm done trying to prove myself to, you know, to people that, that honestly do not matter. There are very, you know, very few things, very few individuals in my life who I allow myself to be judged by. And so I hold myself accountable to them. And my success is basically whether or not I think that they would be proud to call me, you know, son, father, friend, boyfriend, anything like that. Well, I think you're doing a good job of that stuff. I mean, I can tell you the, the dictionary defines success as the accomplishment of an aim or purpose. And I, I say this on the opening um, to our to our podcast is, 
It doesn't talk about fame. It doesn't talk about fortune. It doesn't talk about money. Yeah, sure, those are great, right? Uh, Jesse Itzler, if you've ever read the book Living with the Seal, he talks about money. Uh, a lot of money just magnifies everything. So if you're a good person, more money makes you an even better person. If you're a bad person, more money just makes you an even worse person, right? So I just wanted to be clear to our listeners on our show Always you're going to hear us talk about success. I mean, it's called the circuit of success, but again, you define that and that's what's important. And I love that your ultimate happiness, I mean, that, that's what you define it as. And that's great. appreciate you sharing that. Um, so l- walk our listeners through, you know, this is all the the, the good stuff and, and the stuff you've persevered and, and encouraged, but there's obviously days that you, you get up and you don't want to go for a run and there's days you don't want to go tie your shoes. How do you get through that? How do you fight through it to then actually go for the runs in the mountains and, and do the things that you don't want to do? Right. So I will, I will do my best to filter out my my military uh, verbiage and vulgarity and, and try and uh, keep this a family friendly podcast because some of the things that run through my head necessarily probably aren't good for under 18 year old listeners or anything like that. But the uh, overall, yeah, I, I have, I do, I have objectively, I do have a lot in that proverbial motivational pool of instances in my life where I seem to have just snaked by or overcome whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, different challenges. And so on days when it's, I would say specifically on days when I don't want to go for a run, I cryptically remind myself of the, the, the day I was going. So when I was getting treated in, uh, in Portsmouth, Virginia, there was the hospital, you know, the, the, the prison hospital basically of the, the cancer ward that I was in. And then there was a, a something called a Fisher house kind of like a Ronald McDonald house uh, for military families where my parents would stay at. That was overall maybe 300 yards away from my hospital room. We're talking bed to elevator, elevator to front door of the Fisher house. I remember probably after my third or fourth round of chemo treatment. And I'm, you know, at this point I am the cliche cancer patient. And I remember almost falling over, um, walking through the parking garage. I remember being literally out of breath and panting by, uh, by going from point A to point B. And I remember telling myself at that moment, this is so stupid. Less than two months ago, I was literally hiking 160 pound plus mortar system on my back through the mountains of Southern, you know, California in a training exercise, like how, like this is, it was kind of getting back to like, how dare you, you know, take this away from me. And so I definitely remind myself on days that I don't want to do some things, those moments when I couldn't and, and, you know, in some ways, you know, vowing that I would never waste that time again. So, and that's, but that's obviously that that's specific to me. And I think, you know, for other people, to, to, you know, take that story and make it their own would be difficult without having uh, a personal tie to it. So I would say for other people, just understand life can be so, even for me, even for me as a cancer patient and as all these other things, even I get reality checks of, Hey, you better, you know, you better pick up what you're doing. You better, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Nobody cares. Some the job's got to get done. Um, and I think, you know, without without going on too much of a tangent and hopefully bringing some of this full circle and, you know, if you don't mind me doing a little bit of a plug for my charity um, that 
uh, so I have a nonprofit called I Do It For Her. And, you know, we help at risk underserved youth in St. Louis uh, get, you know, the right, you know, what I think is a right, edu- the right to an education uh, through financial scholarships, along with some other things. If, if anybody's interested in that, they can just Google I Do It For Her and, it, you know, dot com, dot org, it'll show up. But anyway, accountability. Um, I don't hold, I don't hold myself accountable to myself. Like I was saying before, I hold myself accountable to the important people in my life. Um, whether or not it's, is today going to be the day that I be, you know, am the son that my parents deserve or the, the brother that my sisters deserve, the friend that my, you know, close friends deserve. I, I, I truly believe that the holding yourself accountable to the standards of other people that you value is the ultimate way to just get stuff done. Because you and I probably both know when you hold yourself accountable, you know, taking it back to like a workout kind of thing, you justify not getting up. You justify breaking from that diet. You justify that offhand comment you heard on some blog about how it's more important to do, you know, stretching than it is weightlifting or something like that. And so, you know, you, you are your own worst enemy. And so I've decided to take that variable out of the equation and I make myself, you know, not to be too super nerdy or technical, but I make myself equal to the value of others instead of the equal to the value of myself. Well, that's great. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your charity. I know you briefly mentioned it there, but we want to plug that as much as we can because you guys are doing great work for people here in St. Louis. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, I would, so, you know, plugging it again, its name is I do it for her. Um, I do it for her.com. I do it for her.org. Uh, it's a charity that I started just before I entered the military. And it, you know, like I said, I live, I live a very authentic life now. And, um, you know, I 100% started this charity simply because of this girl that inspired me to become someone better. And that's, the mission statement, the mantra, you know, become someone better than you ever thought possible. I have to ask you, does, does her, does she know about, I do it for her charity? I get that. I get that question. And uh, to this day I can answer that. I have no, no idea. Okay. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a whole nother podcast in, in, in that question. Um, but I can say for right now, her and I, uh, it, it, her and I are not the focus of the story. The mission is the focus of the story. And so with the charity, though, we do, we help, we have, we have two areas that I like to dedicate ourselves to. And one is a little bit, you know, more tangible than the others in that the first one, like I said, we help underserved at risk youth in St. Louis um, through financial scholarships, uh, through the KIPP charter school program, which was started by the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation. We, you know, provide them with as much money as we can. You know, these are, these are poor families that, you know, it's heartbreaking at times, legitimately heartbreaking to to have the applications come in because they're one after another single parent families where the mom is working three or four jobs to put food on the table. You know, just that, again, reality check of like, hey, life can be so much worse kind of uh, kind of instances. And so we do what we can. We're not able to provide full scholarships. But what we're able to do is to take, you know, right now what we do is $4,000 increments. So we, once we have $4,000 in the bank, we choose, we open the applications up, we choose a student, 
that we think is going to succeed and embodies the the belief of you know education above all being important because the education is what is going to bring you you know out of that that system that you might be in of poverty and so we we choose applicants uh, and we we guarantee them four full years of thousand dollar scholarships and you know however they need to use that money. It's obviously more for tuition, but however they need to use that money is up to them. If they got money, you know, if they need to pay bills, that's on them. Um, and, and, you know, so that, so that's what we do. Uh, I, I think the, the way the charity started is legitimately how, uh, a belief of you'd be amazed at what you can get away with when you simply ask. Um, because I, you know, I have a degree in biology. I was a Marine infantry officer. I played football. I don't know business. Um, I, I, I wish I could have invented the Snuggie, but I'm not that smart. But basically, <laughs> I bought a $30 book off Amazon, and I think it was titled How to Start a Nonprofit. And I just checklisted every piece that I needed to. And I, I remember the day that I got my, you know, the IRS tax, you know, nonprofit status approved in the mail. And was just like, I can't believe this. Like, You'd be you'd be amazed at what you can get away with. Uh, it just happened. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, we've been going strong since 2012. The other part of it is something that I've tried to develop. Again, going back to the, uh, the no longer fearing failure kind of thing. We try to basically become a make a wish foundation, but not for terminally ill people, simply for people that have gone through a major life changing event and they feel the need to reinvent themselves. And that's a little bit more. That's, that's, that's a difficult one to hold people accountable for. Um, and that's a, that's a, it's a, that requires more resources than I think we have right now. So we're more focused on the school aspect, but I can say, you know, as near to 100% of donations that come in, they go to school or they go to this, they go to the kids. I pay, I, you know, authenticity. I think I pay like uh, $75 a year for the domain. And then we, we have a few branded T-shirts that are definitely up for sale if anybody wants. And other than that, you know, this is not something where I'm going to be tracked down in 10 years from the IRS because I have an offshore bank account. And I'm just funneling money in like as much as this money as possible goes to helping others. That's great. So we're going to have some fun. We're going to turn the page a little bit and we're going to see what type of guy you are here. So I give you, I give you $10 million, okay? You yeah. can you cannot give it to charity though. Uh. <laughs> okay, that's always going to be everybody's answers on here. Right? You got to yeah. give it to charity. So yeah. this one, we, you, you've given a lot to charity. You're doing a lot for charity, so you can't give it to that. What are you doing with ten million bucks? Ten million dollars, and I'll tell you that buys that buys a lot of skydives. Um, I uh, I'm a licensed skydiver. <laughs> I'm a licensed skydiver, uh, and I. I have a certain affinity for jumping out of what they would call perfectly good airplanes almost every weekend, which I don't understand at all. But it's fine. <laughs> it's uh, you know, it, it is the weird one. A lot of people clearly, you know, some of the things we talked about, some a lot of the things we haven't talked about, um, give me the stereotype of an adrenaline junkie, and I still fight that. I still fight that that stereo that stereotype that uh, condemnation. I would call it. I am not an adrenaline junkie. There are plenty of things in my life where I've looked at and I've said, that is just way too stupid for me. And, uh, but skydiving, unfortunately, is not one of those. And skydiving has been incredibly therapeutic for me over the years. And so uh, $10 million 
I'll tell you that'll <laughs> that'll keep me in the air for for as long as I can as long as I can manage. That's awesome. So, um, end of the night, you're with all your friends, your family. You got one song to keep the night going. What are you playing? Oof. You're, you're, you're appealing to my, uh, to my current hipster, uh, trends right now. Uh, no, no lies about it. I would say I'm definitely on the back end of an EDM phase, uh, you know, electronic dance music. That's, uh, you know, kind of, again, going back to my personality of just put on a, a big old pot of get stuff done, you know, no cream, and then listen to some EDM music and go out for a nice run in the mountains for a weekend. I definitely, uh, you know, seem to have my, you know, Spotify, SoundCloud, Pandora playlist going to some pretty high beats per minute, uh, whenever it's open. So I would say whether or not it's, uh, the audience is my family or my 10 year old nephew or some of my best friends, most likely it's going to be some EDM. Got it. And, uh, last question before we close out here today, best day of your life. All right. So just tell us if you had to live one day over again, something that just absolutely a great memory for you, you know, happy, just cool, a great experience, whatever it may be. What's the best day of your life? Matt, and this one is going to surprise, I think almost everyone. It is not cancer related. It is, you know, it's not being told you don't have cancer anymore. Um, it's not anything military related of, you know, finally succeeding in something I can say. So one of my best friends uh, at the time and to this day, his name's Stryker Shulak. He was one of my teammates at Mizzou. And in the summer, uh, you know, when you have the quote unquote voluntary workouts, uh, that was our reprieve from the program as far as football goes, where, you know, you're not being slammed at school, football practice, all these other weightlifting, all these things, but you still have conditioning. And so we were on campus. And so I'm at, I would say 20, 21 years old at the time. Um, I have uh, this dog of mine that is, <laughs> that is the light of my life to this day. This dog is, it's, it's a black lab. It is. I just, she is my everything in this world. And so her name's Maya. And at the time of this story, I would say in this day specifically, she was about a year old. And I remember back in the day when I, cause I don't drink anymore, uh, but back in the day of college, when I, you know, was getting a, a 12 ounce degree or a 16 ounce degree, um, <laughs> I, uh, we, I was, I was with my teammate striker and some other teammates and we had gone out pretty, you know, we had done the full day of conditioning, felt like we had deserved the hard night of partying and uh, definitely fulfilled that checklist, that errand. And I remember the next morning I woke up and it was one of the off days because I think we would have off days on Wednesday. And I woke up late in the afternoon on my friend Stryker's couch. And as I woke up, my dog Maya is at my feet and the way she just like looks at me and the way I wake up and just at the time when we're all waking up and, you know, I've got teammates that are like sprawled out on the floor, you know, sprawled out, passed out, whatever you want to call it. I've got, you know, Stryker and some other, you know, friends coming down from the, the, the second story of their apartment building. And just in that moment, the way the sun was coming through and just the way you just, you, you know, it, it had that like Friday night lights kind of uh, persona to it where you were just like, this is what football is, you know, as much as I love the, the, the fans and the stadiums and the games and all that stuff in that moment, just that connection of being like, you're with this, your boys. I'm with my boys, hard night, like headaches aside, we're about to go, you know, incur some more headaches. This is, this is heaven to me. And, uh, 
yeah, if I, you know, that's why it's, it's, it's probably a surprise to others, um, you know, that it doesn't revolve around my medical history or professional or anything like that. But just in that moment, I would, I would, that, that's my heaven. The day that I die, because I'm obviously going to die, the day that I die, that's going to be my heaven. Man. Well, you've given us a lot today, Adam, and I really appreciate it. I mean, just yeah. the stuff you've gone through in your life and, and uh, taught us, I mean, I always say I'm, I'm very mentally strong, but I, I can only say I don't think I would last, those, especially my friends that know me, right? I, I wouldn't last five minutes in this derby, uh, in this rally. So I wouldn't even gone on a plane to go over there. So just congrats on everything you've done, man. I know you're going to have a huge, huge f- future. Um, Google doesn't know what's coming, right? Because I think that's where you're going to go work. I believe it. You're not going to stop for anything. So I appreciate your time. Tell our listeners, where can they find you? Uh, If you're a social media guy, uh, I know your website uh, for your charity. Where else can they find you? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm pretty limited to simply Facebook and Instagram um, as far as socials go. But if you want to if if you if you want to if you want to see a a caption of some of the things I get into on Instagram, uh, my handle is just simply Adam Casey. And then uh, Facebook, I'm pretty sure you can find me, Adam Casey. My profile photo is just me on a horse. Um, other than that, yeah, I would, I would drive people to the website because as much as I love doing these interviews, and I can't say enough, Brett, how much I appreciate doing this. And um, hopefully hopefully this gets you going on the right step or on the right path. But for the most part, um, my story is, is simply to serve others. And, it, you know, the, the charity and I do it for her and everything that that embodies is my message and is is my inheritance that I want to pass on. So I encourage people to follow both. um, But if you only have to choose one, go with the charity. I like it. Thank you for your time, Adam Casey. It was great spending it with you, my friend, and uh, look forward to watching your uh, growth uh, in the future. Tune in next week for another episode of The Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm.